to the Scottish Business Network podcast. Hello, I'm Fraser Allen. Welcome to episode 64. For rugby fans of a certain age, the abiding memory of David Soule is of the Scottish captain leading the team out for the 1990 Grand Slam triumph against England. Yet as well as an outstanding rugby career that also encompassed a World Cup semi-final and a victorious Lions tour of Australia, David has built a very successful business career and is now managing partner of the School for CEOs, a senior coaching business that he set up with Patrick MacDonald, chair of the Institute of Directors and former CEO of John Menzies. In this extended episode, David treats us to wonderful insights into his rugby and business experiences, including the importance of humility and emotional intelligence in our leaders. We also hear about his recent adventure in the world of rearing chickens, why his Grand Slam celebrations were cut short, and how for a period at Diageo, he was the biggest buyer of alcohol in the world. I interviewed David on the 30th of March 2021. If you enjoy this episode, why not subscribe to the series? Simply search for Scottish Business Network on Apple Music, Spotify, or the podcast platform of your choice. David Soul, great to speak to you again. Welcome to the podcast. How are you doing? I'm very well, thanks, Fraser. Yeah. I presume we're speaking to you in Edinburgh. Are we working from home? I am working from home. I have been for the last uh, 12 months or so, but uh, it's a different home that I was in um, you know, this time last year. We actually moved house in lockdown. We did the, the sort of move out to out to the country. So we're, we're actually in a, an old farmhouse um, near Kirkliston. And if you hear a little bit of banging in the in the background, it's because we're having our roof fixed at the moment. Oh, right. <laughs> we we bought a bit of a project, uh, my wife and I. But it's it's lovely. It's in a lovely spot. It's um, you know, slightly quite secluded, and it's got a lovely big garden, things like that. So um, the plan is to try and make the most of uh, what what it has to offer. So you know, perhaps keep a few animals. We've already got chickens. Uh, we're doing a beekeeping course. Uh, we have aspirations to get perhaps some sheep and the odd cow uh, and perhaps a pig or two so uh, yeah i think it's it's a return to the good life but i think we're probably going to be more more more, more jerry and margot than tom and barbara <laughs> well it sounds exciting and a great place to move to during you know the, the strange months of of lockdown so how have the past 12 months been for you david both in terms of professionally and, and personally uh, well, professionally, it's been really challenging. Um, <clears throat> you know, our, our business uh, this time last year relied on getting people into a room and having a, a sort of human interaction, uh, hearing from others, uh, you know, sharing their experiences and expert insights into some of the challenges that business leaders face. Uh, and of course, we haven't been able to do that for the last 12 months. So it's been a real challenge for us. So we, we've tightened our belts. We've uh, done, I think, what many businesses have done, sort of cut back on um, extraneous expenditure and all that sort of thing. Unfortunately, we've had to make a, a, you know, a redundancy. And um, one of our teams actually moved from Edinburgh to Dubai to take up a role in Dubai. So um, it's been quite a, there's been uh, quite a lot of change. Uh, having said that, we've, we've done what many businesses have done and tried to pivot and offer learning experiences online and you know I'm pleased to say that that is beginning to gain some real traction um, and we've started some new things as well so we've we've run a number of programs uh, working in the area of diversity and inclusion in particular in relation to ethnic diversity which is uh, you know really 
very much in focus at the moment, you know, brought into focus by the tragic killing of George Floyd uh, last May. And, you know, that has really helped uh, organisations to start conversation about race and ethnicity. Um, so that's, that's you know, getting a lot of traction. So in some respects, we've come into the, the new calendar year in pretty good shape. Um, and, you know, I would say 2021 has started off in a much more positive fashion than perhaps 2020 ended, uh, which we're really encouraged by. Um, and personally, it's been, yeah, I've, you know, I've quite enjoyed um, working from home. I think it's really challenged my own view of how I was working before. And I, and I think, you know, no matter what we come out into, um, the, my working practices are going to be very, very different to what they were before, where I was you know, down in London, perhaps four weeks out of five. Uh, you know, I think it's going to be, I'll be working from home four weeks out of five and perhaps once a month in London uh, to sort of meet clients and do things. So it, it has really caused me to think personally about what, what uh, I want to do over the next three to five years and how I want to do it. So, you know, it's been, in, in some respects, quite refreshing and encouraging in that regard. Plenty of time to feed the chickens now as well. <laughs> really interesting to hear what you were saying about the, uh, the the business there. So we're going to come back to to that later on. But let's kind of go back to the beginning of of life here. I mean, w- where did you grow up, and what were your ambitions uh, as, as a youth? Did you always want to get into rugby, and also always intrigued as to what personality traits you might have inherited from your, your parents? Sure. Um, so the, my my very early years, my. Uh, Father worked in the city of London. He worked in property in London, and uh, it was my mother's side of the family who had uh, a place up in Aberdeenshire. So up until I was eight years old, we lived down in Hertfordshire. Uh, but I moved back to Aberdeenshire and, and was really sort of brought uh, brought up in in Aberdeenshire. Um, and I, I absolutely loved it up there. The freedom and space that we had um, in the just inside the Cairngorm National Park is just one of the most beautiful parts of the world. To uh, for a young person to sort of grow up and incredible freedom. You could sort of go out at nine o'clock in the morning after breakfast and come home when you're a bit hungry, you know, tea time sort of thing, if you wanted to. So that, that was, you know, an incredibly liberating upbringing and childhood. Um, I mean, in terms of aspirations, my folks were always really keen on sport and, and a range of different sports. And I was, you know, enraptured by... Uh, the sort of five nations as it was, the, the religion or, or sort of um, habits that my folks had made. You know, they would sit down in front of the television on a Saturday and, you know, glue themselves to you know, matches being played. And, you know, I, you know, not having a particularly long attention span, at, you know, as a, as a youngster, we'd sort of watch for maybe 20 or 30 minutes and then go out and kick a ball and play my own international match out in the garden. Uh, and, and that was very much something that was uh, really important to me. I, I, I love rugby, you know, when I was introduced to it at school and uh, <clears throat> you know, I find I was, I was reasonably good at it. So uh, that became a, a sort of an overriding ambition to sort of see how far I could go. And, and a lot of my choices around university and, and job were, were principally made based on, you know, what can I do in terms of, furthering my rugby career rather than furthering my uh, professional working career. Um, and that was fine, you know. And in terms of traits from, from my parents, you know, I think, uh, you know, I hope I've inherited some of their traits in terms of the support that they 
offered me to do what I wanted to do. Um, I hope I'm doing that to my kids, you know, and supporting them in the same way. Um, because, you know, <clears throat> they never pushed me in any particular direction. If I showed an interest in a direction, then they would get enthusiastic and try and help me understand about what are the implications of going down that direction. But they never pushed me or, or forced me to go down any particular route. They allowed me to plow my own furrow and, and find my own way in life, which was fantastic. Uh, and of course, I mean, you, your career um, began prior to the professional era in rugby. So you, as you say, you, you, you were spending a lot of time thinking about rugby, but there was also the, an important to get a career going as well. So you studied economics uh, and agricultural economics at Exeter University. So what was going on in your head at the time, David? You, what, at what point did you realise you could really make it as a, as a rugby player and how are you balancing that with your your studying and your uh, career plans? Yeah, I think the short answer to the last question is not very well. <clears throat> um, <clears throat> I, was, I was very, uh, you know, focused on rugby and, and it was a two-term sport at Exeter. But, but I think that was a classic example of, um, you know, me, me pursuing my, or making decisions on, on the basis of my rugby career rather than anything else to, to go with. And, you know, I had aspirations to, to go to Cambridge and my parents met at Cambridge after the war and they were both up there and my dad was you know very keen to see if I could play in a varsity match uh, being a, a former Cambridge student um, and having won a blue for or two blues for hockey and I, I applied for Cambridge to do land economy at Magdalen which was the sportsman's degree at the sportsman's college if you had um, a modicum of ability it was it was pretty much guaranteed that you would get in the only problem was that the year that I applied um, they decided that they would change their admissions tutor uh, because they were fed up with this reputation of Magdalen having a um, you know being the place where rugby players or cricketers or hockey players went to you know further their sporting career rather than their academic career so uh, it was it was rather an unfortunate year for me to apply so clearly I, there was no way I was going to get in with a new admissions tutor um, so I then looked up the the, the UCAS um, leaflet and, and looked at other universities which had a, a you know very strong reputation for rugby and, and landed on the likes of Exeter, which had just merged with St Luke's College. Uh, having looked looked at the, you selected the university first and then looked down the list of courses uh, to figure out which would be the most appropriate. And I thought oh, economics and agricultural economics sounds okay. Uh, come from a farming background that must be that must be pretty much it uh, and that was really uh, the, the science behind my university education um, and Exeter you know, were, oh, you know, offered me an unconditional place which was fantastic so I ended up going down there and it was just a, a brilliant place um, both from a rugby perspective but also from a, a studying perspective and, and you know great it was a very small course I think there were only 10 people on our on our course and, and we'd sit in with economics students for the economics lectures but the agricultural economics there, there were only 10 people on the course and it was it was great because it was you know you became friends uh, you know and we had a very close cohort of people on it so it was uh, really good and uh, I had a great great three years down down at Exeter probably more focused on enjoying myself and playing rugby than than my qualification I didn't come out with a particularly great degree I'm perfectly honest <laughs> well I'm sure you're not alone in that uh, <laughs> in that approach to university life 
Um, let's talk a bit more about rugby for now and, and head back to business. So, I mean, I think when, when most people think about you, David, they, there's an iconic image of you striding onto the pitch at Murrayfield <laughs> at the, uh, the 1990 Grand Slam decider. So I'd be really keen to know what some of your striking memories about the, the run-up to the game, the match itself, and, and of course, the, the celebrations afterwards. Well, it, it was um, it was a funny season because obviously in the Five Nations you had a weekend off, so we we had the first weekend off um, before we played Ireland. And the way that our fixtures ran, we played the team that had just played England um, in the first of our fixtures. So England at that particular point were phenomenal. They provided a lot of the Lions. Uh, on the 89 tour, which a number of us have been on. So we had a huge amount of respect for them. And, and they played some absolutely brilliant rugby. <clears throat> demolished Ireland uh, and, and demolished Wales and France and so on. And we had to sort of follow them. So we went across to Ireland and, and we sort of managed to scramble a victory there, which for a lot of us was our first away win. Uh, we talk about the, the challenges of winning away from home, and, and that was very much the case in the old days. Um, we then played France at home, and uh, one of the French players got sent off, which was helpful, so we managed to, to win that reasonably comfortably. Uh, and <clears throat> got through a, a fairly tricky encounter with Wales, didn't play particularly well. But we suddenly found ourselves um, playing for a Grand Slam uh, in the same way that England were playing for a Grand Slam. And, and I guess our route to that point had been very understated compared to uh, England's, which had been playing some phenomenal rugby and, and really sweeping everybody aside in front of them. Um, and of course, uh, I guess the thing that irritated the most was the, the fact that the press had... Um, rather discounted the fact that uh, we were playing for a Grand Slam in the same way that England were playing for a Grand Slam, which, you know, frankly, irritated us a little bit because I think it, it, it was mu as much the press not showing us respect as anything else, which, you know, in some respects, given that we hadn't uh, swept side to side in the same way that the English had, was possibly justified up to a point. Um, but, you know, we, we viewed Murrayfield as our, our home and a, and a difficult place to play. And so uh, there was something about how do we try and uh, capture the imagination of the, the Scottish fans who were there on the day. And I came up with this, this idea of walking out very slowly, very deliberately, which, uh, again, you know, was, was not a, an original idea. I think Gary Callender had done it um, in a trial match, which I didn't realise, but obviously in a trial match, um, it was a very different situation and circumstance to... Um, winning a grand or a grand slam match, um, and Finn Calder had said he did it at, uh, in the first test the previous year, walking out at the Sydney Football Stadium. And again, I was right at the back of the queue, so I said, "Well, I, I don't remember that." But I said we we did it in a slightly different fashion, in a very deliberate and measured way, uh, and it was the most extraordinary um, event. You know, even talking about it now, it, it still causes the hairs on the back of my neck to stand on end because. The impact of the crowd uh, was quite extraordinary because, you know, as you would normally run out or jog out or do whatever it was, you'd, you'd, you know, there'd be a massive crescendo and the crowd would cheer. Um, and as, the, as I emerged into the daylight, the, you know, the first Scottish jersey, that, that crowd cheer went up. But then it sort of subdued a little bit. 
mm. uh, went quiet. And you could almost hear the, the crowd thinking, hang on a minute, normally they run out. This time they're walking out in a sort of slightly menacing way. Actually, that's pretty cool. And, uh, you know, the, the, the volume of the, of the subsequent cheer that, that, you know, engulfed Murrayfield was just extraordinary. Um, <clears throat> and the, and the, the sort of intensity was incredible. And it, it just seemed to capture the imagination of everyone that was there and, and create an atmosphere, which, which didn't really need much creating. I think everyone was pretty excited about the game. Um, but that, that sort of gesture, I think, it's one of those things. If we'd lost, no one would be talking about it. But the fact that we won, you know, means that it's it's gone down in, in folklore, I think, a little bit. And uh, uh, you know, it's David, very much was, linked. So to when it. you when you started playing, when when the match started, David, I mean, was there a moment in the match when you thought we've we've got this? This is this is ours. <clears throat> well, you, you know, it's, it's funny. I think in some games you, you feel that it's your day, and you know that whatever's going to happen. Um, even though you might be behind on the scoreboard, actually you're still going to come back and, and, and win the match. And if I'm perfectly honest, that felt like one of those days. You know, I, I felt that you know we were sufficiently well prepared. We'd um, you know got the, the players, everybody was fit, and so on and so forth. And you know, if we executed our plans and, and did what we need to do uh, and create a a, a, you know, a, a really intense experience for the English. We could knock them off their stride and, and you know, cause them some problems. And, and you know, we had a, a, a very sort of quiet and understated confidence about the game going into it because we prepared really well. We, we knew we had great players. We weren't afraid of uh, the English players. And I think, I think, you know, having had so many Scots tour with so many of the English players the previous year, there was almost a recognition that, you know, these guys are human. You know, they've got frailties and fallibilities uh, themselves. And if we get stuck into them, we can expose them and, and um, take advantage of them. And, and, and so the Lions tour the preceding year was, I think, hugely influential in, in helping us have a mindset which, uh, and a belief that, that meant that we would go into that game truly believing we could win it. Um, and of course, you know, we, we um, conceded a try early in the um, second half, I think it was, uh, or first half to Jerry Cuscott scored a brilliant try and things like that. So, so, you know, we had a few setbacks to overcome, but um, it was one of those games where you just felt it was going to be your day. Um, and conversely, the, the semi-final a year later in the World Cup, uh, when England came came up and beat us, whatever it was, nine three, nine six, something like that, felt like a game that we were never going to win, even though we were ahead at certain right. points. Uh, and it's 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 funny. It's just the, those feelings that you have. So after the uh, the, the nineteen ninety game, just just a quiet night was it afterwards? Just well, <laughs> you know, it's funny. I <clears throat> I really wanted to enjoy that evening and wanted to to be you know a really long evening. Um, and so I was very, very diligent in pacing myself and making sure I didn't you know, peak too early with alcohol. Um, and, and so it was very measured. 
my wife, on the other hand, had, had, had not taken that approach and I think was quite euphoric in, in the victory. And um, it was bizarre because we actually discovered on the Monday that she uh, was pregnant with our daughter. Right. Um, and she did, she'd had, she had a cracking night. So whether it was the pregnancy or, or whatever, um, I ended up having to take Jane and, and uh, Jane to bed quite early in, in the evening uh, and and therefore woke up with a very clear head the next morning. So um, I missed out on a lot of the, the sort of cel- celebrations and so on. But, but you know, there, there was enough to, to make it a, a meaningful night. And I think, you know, the really lovely thing about that is, or about the game is, is the impact that it had on so many people around the world, Scots around the world. Uh, it's a bit like, you know, sometimes people can remember where they were when JFK was killed or they heard about Princess Diana's death, things like that. You know, for, for Scottish rugby fans, they knew and, and will tell me exactly where they were when they heard the result. You know, um, I'm sure Murrayfield had a capacity of about two and a half million based on the number of people I've met who uh, said they were there at the game. But uh, there we go. Well, it's funny you mention that because I was actually working as a newspaper reporter, a very young reporter in Istanbul when the, <laughs> the match went on, and I was desperate to watch it. But of course, you know, long before the internet, yeah. you just want not a sport you would find viewed on a, a screen in a Turkish cafe. <laughs> so I, I came up with a plan, and I thought the British consulate is the way to go. Yeah. So I put my smartest clothes on, and I just sauntered in as if I, you know, worked there and said hello to the the concierge or whatever, and just walked around and found a room with a, a TV that was all set up, <laughs> BBC coverage. So I watched the whole game. It was brilliant. 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 <laughs> Certainly never never forget that. Yeah. So, I mean, David, you had a, a great career. I mean, you, you've, you've mentioned the World Cup semi-final. Um, we, we haven't been in, in one of those since. And, and you played for the Victorious Lions team in Australia. Are those kind of great moments the the ones that really stand out for you are there some sort of maybe less obvious moments that you look back on very fondly and were there any any tough moments in your rugby career when you thought why am I doing this yeah I I think to to take the last question first my final season um was was a tough season we'd um Obviously, we had the World Cup in the in the autumn, um, which meant that we started preparing for that very early in sort of the summer, uh, for sort of pre-season and so on. We went to Romania, played a, a game out there um, as a sort of warm-up match. Uh, and then we had the, the sort of World Cup campaign in October and November, which again was quite a long campaign um, because we, you know, we were lucky enough to progress um, you know, to, the, to the final four. And had to play in that dreadful game, which is the third, fourth playoff, which I really don't, don't understand why they bother with that. But anyway, um, it's the worst game in the world. Um, and, you know, we then sort of had a, had a bit of a break over Christmas. And I, I, I remember going away on a skiing holiday over Christmas and not playing in the trial because I just wanted to sort of freshen up. And then we came back into uh, the Five Nations, as it was then, a number of guys had retired, like sort of Finnick Alder, John Jeffrey had sort of stepped back. Um, and we had a tour of Australia uh, at the end of the year. And I got sort of halfway through the Five Nations and I thought, I'm, I'm really not enjoying this anymore. And I'd always made a promise to myself that I would carry on playing so long as I was still enjoying it. And um, when I stopped enjoying it, I would give up. And so I thought, well, you know, if I'm not enjoying it, then there's no point in 
carrying on. And, and I, you know, I suppose I could have stayed on for another year and the Lions were touring New Zealand in 1993 and uh, there might have been a chance of me uh, captaining that side. Um, but I decided that if I, if, I, if I hung on for that, I'd be doing it for all the wrong reasons. It would be for reasons of ego and, and that, and, and it's not why I came into the game or why I played the game. Um, and so I took the decision to, to step back from it and, and, and cut my ties with it at that particular point. Um, but <clears throat> going back to your first question, I mean, I, I think it, it sort of relates to that. You know, the, the game of rugby is in the amateur era was something which you know gave so much to so many um yeah and the sort of friendships and camaraderie that you developed over um the years often in adversity you know you would um try and beat the hell out of each other on the field for 80 minutes and then have you know the most amazing parties afterwards and, and become true friends uh you know and that was absolutely fantastic and um you know, I remember the you know the night after the uh, that dreadful third fourth playoff with the All Blacks. We had just the most hilarious party in Cardiff. You know, and we were playing drinking games and just having an absolute crack with those guys um, because we toured New Zealand in 1990, and I think that was one of uh, both my greatest highlights and, and greatest regrets. That you know we we had a, a fabulous tour of New Zealand. I think only three touring sides have gone through New Zealand and the history of New Zealand rugby undefeated in their provincial matches. And that Scottish side of 1990 was one of those three teams. So that, I felt, was a, a tremendous accolade. And the second test, you know, I'll go to my grave bemoaning the fact that I'm sure Mike Brewer was offside, which caused uh, Grant Fox to kick a penalty, which kind of turned the, <clears throat> turned the game for the All Blacks. But, you know, to have got so close to defeating the All Blacks, we scored two tries to one uh, in their own backyard at their sort of mm. spiritual home of Eden Park in Auckland, um, you know, was, was a massive regret. And, and you know, it was a, one of those missed opportunities that, that, you know, you think over time, you think, well, how, how the hell did we let that one slip through our fingers? And very frustrating. But again, the, 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 the friendship that we forged both within that particular squad, and we had some... Yeah, really young players. They had Graham Shield and Doddy Weir on that tour, and they were both nineteen. You know, so really young and inexperienced. But you know, found that a really formative time for them as both young men and as and as rugby players. Um, and so that was fantastic. And and the crack that we had with the All Blacks, you know, in the, in the parties afterwards were just were just great fun. And you know, New Zealand is uh, such a fabulous country and such a hospitable people and so knowledgeable and passionate about their rugby it was just a, a wonderful wonderful time you know which um, perhaps didn't eclipse the, the, the pride and joy of winning a grand slam or, or you know being on a winning lions tour but uh, it was definitely one of the highlights uh, of my career my rugby career the second half of the interview continues in a few seconds after this. Do you need a communications expert to help you with your marketing, brand storytelling or strategic content? Find out what I, Fraser Allen, can provide at www.allencoms.co.uk. That's Allen with two L's and an E and comms with two M's. Of course, the um, the game has changed hugely in the, in the modern 
professional era, I'm sure you've been asked this question loads of times, but I mean, would you fancy your, your chances playing in as a professional? <laughs> um, fancy my chances? I mean, do you think would I make it or would I enjoy it? Well, or? Just, no, I just mean, I mean, obviously it would be a professional game, so you'd be training the way that uh, they're, they're all training now, but would, would you, are you happy happier that you played in the era that you played in or would you have preferred to have had the opportunity to play as a professional? Yeah, I, I wouldn't trade my experiences for all tea in China. Um, you know, I think, <coughs> as I said, that it, it was the friendships, the camaraderie. You know, we played rugby for fun. That was our recreation. Um, and, you know, I think if that is what you want from your career and your, your sort of, if I think about the modern player, if if they're happy to commit as they do uh, and really put their bodies uh, on the line, literally, uh, to to play their sport and, and get paid for that, you know, I have you know incredible respect for them because what they do um, physically is extraordinary. And, and Jamie, my eldest son, had a season down at Newcastle Falklands in the professional ranks, and you know when he came and he told told me about what he was doing in terms of uh, strength and conditioning skills and so on, you know, it, it was relentless. I, you know, I think I, I like diversity. I like working with different people. I like different things. Um, and I think I'd probably get a bit bored as a professional rugby player. I think my curiosity is such that I would have liked to have experienced professional the professional game just to see what it was like. But, I, you know, for a 10 or 12 or 15-year career, I think, yeah, that's probably... Probably not what I would uh, I would enjoy them much. And, and all the time that you were playing rugby, of course, you were sort of building a, a career in the background. So you, you'd said earlier, as a student, it was you, you didn't really work too hard at balancing the career side of things. But how how did things develop then in terms of work? Um, <clears throat> well, I, I'd spent time at Bath, and in those days. Um, Clubs would have, uh, I wouldn't say benefactors is probably overstating it, but they'd have um, guys who had businesses who would employ rugby players periodically. And, and I, I was in a bit of demand when I was in the West Country uh, from both Bristol and Bath. Um, so I, I was very lucky that, that Bath came and they, they had a guy who had a dairy company, which sort of seemed to have a, a reasonably sensible fit with my degree uh, and I, I joined uh, his organisation um, as a marketing and management trainee um, and I, I did a whole load of different jobs and projects for him but it, it basically helped me to establish myself in in the city. I got married there and, and it was after the World Cup in 1987 that I decided I wanted to be back up in Scotland um, and so came back uh, up here and um, you know, I think the power of the network is is really important. You know, I Finley Calder is one of my best friends. Uh, I spoke to him and talked to him about my plans, and he worked in the grain trade. He knew of people that were were looking for uh, sales reps. So um, I had a, an interview and and joined uh, a small grain merchant in in Edinburgh, and that sort of got me into the grain trade in Scotland. Um, but but I wasn't particularly focused on 
making a career out of it. Um, it was more, again, something to keep me busy while I, I could train in the evenings and, and play sport at the weekends, play rugby at the weekends. And it was really only in my latter 20s that I started to think that actually I needed to consider a, a career, a proper career. Um, and I, I, again, Finlay brought it to my attention that United Distillers were looking for a a grain buyer, um, so I applied for that job and was lucky enough to um, be accepted. So I, I joined United Distillers, which was uh, the spirits company of Guinness, and that was kind of a, a step into you know, big corporate life. Um, and I absolutely loved it there. You know, we had the, you know, working in the Scotch whisky industry um, as a Scot, you know, very proud Scot. You know, what what better job could there be? Um, and I loved it, and you know, I was. I guess my ambitions um, that kind of burned within me, which pr- perhaps were principally focused on on rugby in my early years, in my 20s, transferred to actually developing a business career then. Um, and so I was lucky enough to be promoted. I ended up running the team that um, was responsible for all the raw material going into our production sites, as well as um, all of the co-products coming out of the distilleries in terms of animal feeds so the you know barley wheat and so on and then co-products coming out <clears throat> and it was interesting I, I got that job in my mid-30s and I suddenly thought blimey is this it you know is this my job last job for 20 years if I retire at 55 and that was a slightly salutary moment um but I didn't dwell too long on it because um in the late 90s, Guinness and Grand Metz announced that they were going to merge, and, and that was going to be uh, you know, quite a big challenge in terms of putting the two spirits businesses together. And I was lucky enough to uh, be invited to do a role which, which in essence, was trying to get some savings from the international size and scale that the business had become in the area of commodities and neutral spirit. So uh, as I say I think I became the biggest buyer of alcohol in the world, which you know, if you want alcohol bought bought cheaply, give the job to a job. So, <clears throat> so uh, you know, and that was a, a, a great learning experience. You know, it gave me a bit of international experience, um, and you know, I thought it was fantastic. I've moved my family down to Oxfordshire. I was doing a lot of international travel, um, but we always wanted to to come back to Edinburgh. So after the the sort of the, the, the role itself was positioned as a two-year role. Uh, so at, towards the end of the two, two years, when I'd achieved my objectives, overachieved on the objectives I'd been set, I said, you know, well, what, what about the next role? And please can I make that in Scotland? Uh, and to cut a long story short, um, I decided that, that to do the sort of things that I wanted to do, uh, I would have to leave Diageo at the time. So... That was a bit of a disappointment because, uh, you know, I loved the business. I loved the, you know, the sector that it was in. And it's interesting, um, you know, I think knowing what I know now and, uh, and in coaching senior execs across a wide range of organisations, I think I would, have a, I would have had a very different conversation as a sort of person in my 30s with the organisation about career than perhaps I thought I would be entitled to have. Um, and I think I might have had a, a different conversation to say, actually, you know, I'm interested in taking a sideways move and, and perhaps doing something a little bit different. If And I think, you know, if the organisation um, was enlightened, which Diageo certainly was, they would, they would have supported that. So 
Um, it's it's a little bit of a regret. I mean, I don't regret the path that I've taken since then, but I, I would, I'm sort of slightly curious to know what, um, if I had had that conversation, what the consequences might have been and where I might have been then. So this was when you then switched to to working in business coaching. So was that something that had been in the back of your mind for, for a while? <laughs> no, not at all. I, I, I had no idea that an industry existed in the world of executive coaching. Um, I, I'd been through coaching training as part of a change program at Distillers. And, you know, for me, it really resonated because, you know, I think when you come from a, a background of high-performance sports, you know, coaching is such an integral um, part of the process. And, you, you get to work with you know great coaches and you get to work with coaches who perhaps aren't so great. And you know, it's interesting when you sit back and observe the differences and the different approaches that, that different coaches take and and then think about, okay, well what are the what are the models uh, of coaching, of, of coaching professionally from an executive coaching perspective? And how did the good and bad coaches either apply those sorts of models or approaches or not? And, and did that contribute to them being good or, or less effective coaches? And absolutely, I think there is a, a strong correlation to that. You know, if I think about Ian McGeechan, Sir Ian McGeechan, you know, some of the traits and behaviours that he deployed as a coach, you know, both with Scotland and with the British Lions when I was there, are absolutely the traits of great executive coaches and um so it's really interesting to sort of see see that and i don't know whether geech has ever done coaching training uh, at all other than the sort of the technical aspect of it but you know he had a really good approach you know strong very high iq and eq in, in terms of his approach to managing his players and working with his players so it, it really resonated for me um, and, you know, I was introduced again, the power of the network. I was introduced to someone uh, who was setting up a business in, in Edinburgh and I had a couple of conversations with them. And the next thing I know, I'm, I'm working three days a week for them. And I was going to do some other consultancy uh, separate to that. Um, and I, I found myself absolutely loving it. You know, I really enjoyed um, working as an executive coach. So my three days went up to four days and four days to four and a half days and eventually full time. What was it that you, you loved about it, David? Well, a, a number of different things. I, I think the, the diversity, I think, you know, the, the point that you're working with different people from a range of different industries. So, you know, one day you could be working with, you know, the managing director of the Selfridges store on Oxford Street. The next day you could be working with the, you know, the head of a, a business that, you know, sells IT or, or technology. Uh, next day, you'll be working with the CEO of a um, recruitment group. So, so there's a massive variability. Um, but, but fundamentally, at the heart of it, it was actually seeing people achieve their potential. I got a huge buzz <clears throat> from people really progressing and, <clears throat> and realizing that the, the undoubted potential that they have. And I think, you know, I, I really... Um, I, I, I'm very proud to sort of be, that people phone me up for advice and, and um, you know want to talk to me and get my perspective. And you know I know and I, and I make all I'm very clear that I'm not a technical expert on retail or accountancy or whatever it is that I'm working with. But you know I think helping people 
through some of their challenges and problems, I, I just get a huge buzz from when they when they come out the other side and they're better than they were when we first started working together. I, uh, you know, I bask in their reflected glory. Right, <laughs> right. And, and then six years later, you, you took another sort of big step in terms <clears> of striking off on your own, setting up your own business. What what drove that, and what did you learn from that experience? Yeah, I think I think. Um, it was uh, the business that I was working in, Whitehead Man, was um, there was a management buy-in uh, funded by the private equity arm of a hedge fund. And I didn't really get the story that the, the person leading the management buy-in um, was trying to tell. And, and, you know, the way that they were approaching it, it didn't feel comfortable. Um and I'd actually resigned about two and a half years earlier when, when a bunch of people had left, uh, but I was persuaded to rescind my resignation and um, head up the leadership development practice. Um, but, but as I say, you know, I just didn't get the story. And I think, I think that's, I mean, it's a really interesting lesson when I think about experience with, with um, you know, coaching. The person that you're talking to has to be compelling. They have to create a, a compelling vision. And get people's buy-in and get people engaged in that vision. And you know, this didn't happen on this particular occasion. Um, and, and so I decided to leave. And I, I had a very friendly exit. I was very fortunate. I left on the Friday. Uh, I started my own business on the Monday. I transitioned all the, the my clients from having been Whited Man clients to David Soul clients. I got a large check based on the residual value of the contracts that were transferred. So in terms of setting up a, a new business um, and, and leaving on good terms, it, it couldn't have been better. And, and you know, I think you know, some of the personalities that I was working with, my boss at the time, the CFO who I knew very well, you know, they knew that I, I wasn't going to try and stitch them up or do anything untoward. And, and so I think that, that went a very long way to, to making that transition as, as seamless as it was. And then, um, 10 years later, you, you joined forces with Patrick McDonald, who's the former CEO of John Menzies, to, to form the, the wonderfully titled School for CEOs. <laughs> so what, what was the thinking behind that business, David, and which is, of course, still very much going? And what have yeah. been the, the key challenges and successes running up to the, the recent kind of COVID challenges? Sure. Well, I, I mean, I'd, I'd known Patrick when he was CEO at Mingus and, and had done some work for one of his team there. Um, and it came back to networking. I, I'm a great believer in keeping in touch with people. And Patrick had, had left uh, Mingus uh, as CEO and I kept in touch with him. Um, and we were having lunch one day and, and he was talking about his experience of coming out of running a large part of GE's business uh, where he worked for Jack Welch and becoming CEO of this um, FTSE 250 um, was at the time still quite a significant family shareholding, and you know, despite having a, a, an MBA with distinction from INSEAD and all of GE's learning and development and a first class degree in it from engineering from Oxford, and, and you know, just a, a kind of gold plated CV, he felt woefully underprepared for that transition into the CEO role, and so we kicked this around as a as an issue and and a. And, as a concept and came up with the idea of the school for CEOs, which in essence is practitioner-led executive education. So Patrick's idea and, and, and the idea that we developed was to create a program where we would get a bunch of CEOs, chairs, non-exec directors to come and 
tell their story to aspiring business leaders. Um, and you know, we boast rather rashly that we have no academic input at all. So it's not about the theory or the models that you would deploy, but it's about the real life things that, that happen in the boardroom or that, that happen as you go into an organization for the first time as CEO. And um, how do you prepare yourself for that? And how do you um, make sure that you don't step into any of the bear pits or, or um, you, know, you avoid all the pitfalls that, that cause people to fail? Uh, and, you know, we think that the power of storytelling and getting people to share their experiences with our delegates is a, is a really compelling way to do that. And so we ran a program in our first program in September 2012, um, and the feedback was fantastic. It went really well. And so we've continued to run this particular program uh, twice a year, um, once in the spring, once in the autumn, until until this time last year when COVID hit. But um so we've run it. We ran it virtually in January uh, for the first time. We're going to run a virtual program uh, next month in April, and we'll hopefully be back to a physical program in October. Um, but the feedback that we get is fantastic from the people who come and join us on the program. And you know, we've got a fabulous faculty of um, you know over a hundred people now who are amongst uh, you know the, the UK's best known business leaders. I'm sure you'd recognise many of the names on the on the list of people and we're continually looking to add to that faculty to ensure that it is diverse and fresh and, and new um so that, that that's what that's what we're we're up to now great and, and david you, you've talked about the impact that the pandemic has had on your your own way of working and just in terms of some of the ceos that you you know and, and you work with have you any sort of observations on how the the crisis has required them to think differently about the way they're going to work in the future? We did a piece of research at the back end of last year and we uh, we had over 700 people from about 50 different organisations you know, at, at the most high, high, at the highest level talk about some of their experiences of lockdown and, and how resilient they are. And I think to your point about CEOs, you know, I think, I think, CEOs have been remarkably resilient, certainly in the first lockdown. I think what we are experiencing and, and our evidence is, is based on both anecdotal conversations and also um, a pulse survey that we did with some CEOs uh, earlier this year. I think you know, where we are now in the first quarter of, of 2021, uh, the novelty of lockdown has worn off um, and, and it's become quite wearisome. Uh, and I think people are really struggling with their mental health and engagement and motivation. Um, and it's, it, it is a function, I think, of the first lockdown. You know, there was a huge amount of energy because it was new. There was a novelty. There was how do you keep your business afloat? How do you sort of uh, roll out the furlough scheme? Do you look for grants and so on from government? And, and, and so there was a lot of energy and activity being driven uh, in the first lockdown to try and keep businesses alive. Uh, and that, you know, has had kept CEOs quite uh, energised, I think. Um, what we notice now is, is that, you know, it, it, it's 12 months in, um, the fatigue is setting in, the resilience is diminished, and uh, the, the kind of personal challenges, I think, are weighing more than perhaps the business challenges were earlier on. I mean, hopefully, I, mean, I, think, I think 
in the last three or four weeks as the weather has improved and we've we've got longer days and uh, we're out of the depths of winter um optimism is beginning to return a little bit and uh, you know, things are changing but I think for a long time it was pretty tough over those winter months just want to um, ask you a little bit about leadership David because if you go in well once we're allowed to go back into bookshops the shelves uh, in the business section always groaning with people <laughs> explaining how to be the greatest leader in the world and so on and you're very well placed to to talk about this both from your kind of sporting background as a leader and all, all the experience you've had working with CEOs etc um, so what do you in essence what do you believe are the key qualities of an outstanding business leader <laughs> gosh how long have we got um, it's, it's really tough I mean you know, clearly um, you, you need to be smart uh, so you need the kind of book smarts you need to <clears throat> the, the intellectual horsepower to be a leader um, I think you also need a, a kind of track record of execution. You need to be able to uh, get stuff done in organizations. But I think some of the other qualities that, that I, I notice the most in, in the most impressive leaders that I've come across, you know, emotional intelligence I touched on before, you know, I think it is such a, an important facet for leaders and, and, and understanding the, the different facets of emotional intelligence, because it's not simply about empathy. It's about self-awareness. It's about social awareness, <clears throat> social interactions. Um, it's about optimism. It's about adaptability. It's about self-actualization. So there's a whole load of different component parts which make up the, the, the whole emotional intelligence piece. Um and, you know, Daniel Goleman, Goleman and Ruben Baron and, and people like that spent a lot of time exploring these. Um, and, and so I think that is such a, a critical quality of the most effective leaders in organizations, particularly in an environment such as the one we're experiencing at the moment. I also think that, you know, humility is a, is a really important quality uh, of a leader. And, um it, yeah, we talk a little bit on, on our programs about that, that you know, getting the balance right because you know, I think people want their leaders to be humble, but they don't want to be don't want them to be too sort of sackcloth and cloth and ashes. And so where do you strike that balance? Conversely, you want your leaders to be confident, but equally you don't want them to be arrogant. And, and so how do you sort of make sure that you strike the right balance? And again, I think that the most impressive leaders are the ones who get those judgments right in terms of getting that balance between confidence and arrogance or, you know, the, the extent to which they consult and are collaborative versus the extent to which, you know, they make decisions and, and you know, drive to execution. And, and, you know, there's a huge complexity uh, about that. But if, but if I were to pick three qualities. I think emotion, intelligence, humility, and integrity are absolutely fundamental to those. Great. And a question I always like to ask, if you could give some advice to the young David Soul <laughs> setting off into the world as a, a heading off to Exeter University, what would it be? I mean, I, it sounded like he didn't actually need a huge <clears throat> amount of advice, but if you, if you did want to offer something, what would it be? <laughs> um, well, I think... I think my advice would be do something you're passionate about. Find something that you are passionate about and pursue that. Uh, and 
if I reflect on you know, my own life, my own career, I, I think it took me a bit of time to find something that I was really passionate about. Um, but, you know, I, I feel very fortunate that, that I am doing that. I have found that now. Um, and so I, I've, you know, it, it leads to a, a very sort of fulfilling life. But, but I think that would be it. I, I think what I kind of miss is... is or if you like the advice I give, it's, it's when I was thinking about um, you know, the courses that I did or the path that I took, I, I perhaps um, my passion was rugby and, and perhaps I should have got that balance a little bit, little bit uh, better. So if I could have found something that I was truly passionate about from a, from a learning and, and a development perspective, that would, have, that would have made a much more enriching experience. But, you know, I, I don't regret anything. Brilliant. Okay, well, we're just going to finish off now with, I've got five quick questions for you. Okay. okay. So, what was the first record you bought? Oh, blimey. Um, I, I honestly can't remember. I think it might have been something by 10cc, you know, like, <laughs> I'm not in love or something corny <laughs> like that. Very 70s, yeah. Yeah. Uh, what, well, <laughs> what was the, the last book you read? The last book I read, um, I'm halfway through James Kerr's book on legacy, um, so I, I'm, I'm reading that. So that that is work in progress. I'd like to balance my reading between <clears throat> something which is uh, perhaps going to teach me something, and then something which is escapism. So I, the, I've the novel that I, the most recent novel was a Ian Rankin's latest book. Um, what's your favourite place in the world? Um, I, I love New Zealand. Um, I, I, <clears throat> we were lucky enough to go out there for Christmas and New Year a few years ago and with the family. It was the last big family holiday and we just had the most amazing two weeks. And I think the thing about New Zealand is it's both you know, very similar to Scotland in, in, um, when you go down to the South Island in its geography. Um, but the thing about it is the people. The people are so friendly and laid back and welcoming. It's just a, a great country. What's for dinner tonight? Um, that's a good question. I, I think we're on curry tonight, actually. Oh, nice. Good choice. <laughs> and finally, um, who's your hero? Who's my hero? Well, from a rugby perspective, um, Ian McLaughlin was my hero. Uh, you know, I grew up in, say, back to reference, the 70s, the 71, 70, yeah, the 71 and 74 Lions Tour. And, uh, you know, Ian McLaughlin was just uh, an absolute icon. Of that. I think, you know, at a personal level, you know, my, my mother was just a fantastic woman. Um, you know, I never heard anyone say a bad word about her and she just had such a, a lovely nature um, and... It was just such a loving person. She was, she was uh, you know, if I could take her qualities and, and live with her qualities every day, I'd be a happy man. Well, that's a, a nice note to, to end on, David. And thanks very much. Really interesting interview. My pleasure. Indeed. Thanks very much to David, a leader both on the rugby pitch and in the boardroom. And thanks to you for listening. We'll be back again in two weeks. Bye for now. To find out more about the Scottish Business Network, simply visit sbn.scot.